Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 16, One Does Not Simply Solve the Shadow Facts Problem. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. And with that said, let's jump right into season two. Welcome back to, I guess, season two of One Does Not Simply. I don't know. Yeah, sure. We went on a holiday break. We didn't tell you we were doing it, but we did. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we are back with The Two Towers, the second book in this trilogy. And uh, today we'll be covering chapters one and two of The Two Towers. And um, so what we got in these chapters was essentially the pickup of the cliffhanger that we left off on in the end of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, We left off with the Fellowship parting ways and Frodo and Sam going off on their own, and Boromir was essentially getting attacked by orcs when we last saw him. And we pick up with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli finding Boromir. Um, Actually, Aragorn finds him first, but he is has finished being attacked by orcs and is basically on on the verge of death. Um, so he and Aragorn have a brief goodbye moment. This chapter is called The Departure of Boromir, so we pretty much knew this was coming. Um, and then they send him off with a little Viking-style funeral, um, send his boat over the falls of Roros, and then uh, then they're like, okay, well, now we got to go after Merry and Pippin because Boromir has informed them that the orcs have taken them. So they decide to go off. And the first chapter is pretty short. We pick up in the second chapter with them um, essentially chasing after these orcs. So they spend a decent amount of time tracking uh, where they think the orcs are going. And they eventually end up in the borderlands of, of the realm of Rohan at which point they encounter the riders of Rohan, um, who are the, the horsemen. And uh, they're, they're <laughs> the men on horses. horses. Yeah, the centaurs of Rohan. <laughs> I don't know this is a fantasy series, but we don't have centaurs. Um, so, yeah, so they encounter the riders of Rohan. They're confronted by them in not the most pleasant of ways initially, but they end up with um, some gift horses that they look in the mouth (laughs) Um, and they go off into the edge of the forest of Fangorn where they're going to continue looking for these hobbits. Um, So I'm still stuck on you saying Boromir is finished being attacked by orcs. (laughs) Like he's like, guys, it's 10 AM. Like I've got to get to my next meeting. We have to wrap it up. So, do either of you know how long actually passed between the publication of the first book and the second book? Is is this where, like a Google I thought, moment? I thought they were all released as one book. Were they all released at the same time? I, I think I vaguely remember that being a thing as well. You might be right. I know they have been all released as one book, but uh, let's see what Google has to say. Fellowship of the Ring was originally published July 29th, 1954, and then it was like three months later, uh, November was when Two Towers was originally published. Okay, so he had, like, clearly written both books at the time of the first one's publication. The the reason I ask this is because, like, this is a pretty intense cliffhanger in between books. 
if if this had been like several years in between publishing, I can only imagine the audience like sitting on the edge of their seat being like, what is going to happen to Boromir? I don't know. Um, and to have this really bold opening in which he's, they find him and he's dead, basically. <laughs> um, it, yeah, he like, departs forever. Yeah, I, I thought that was a very, a very interesting choice. And I can totally see why for the movies, they stuck this chapter on to the end of Fellowship because with the movies, there actually were several years between release. So I can imagine they didn't want to end on like that kind of what feels like deliberately intense moment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I also think the way that Boromir dies in the movies is much more conclusive feeling. I mean, insofar as death can be inconclusive, right? But it feels like in the movies, it really closes a story arc for him and is an ending. Yeah, he essentially finally accepts Aragorn as his king, right? In the movie, he says the line, like, my brother, my king. Yeah. Yeah. My brother, my captain, my king. Yeah. Can't can't forget the my captain. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think in 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 the movie, it seems like there's this kind of continuous beef in number one between Aragorn and Boromir, um, implicitly over, you know, who should be in charge, not just of the fellowship, but also of, of the realm of men. And that is, but the scene with like Boromir trying to take the ring from Frodo, failing his more, like his morals fail him, reveals himself to be not as much of a badass as Aragorn. Aragorn's more of a badass. Then Boromir dies and says, "You're, you're, you've definitely been the king all along." It all, it just closes out this like this sense of like beef between the two of them. And you're supposed to take away from this that Aragorn is now like the legitimate leader. Which yeah, you win the badass competition. <laughs> no, but I will say the other thing too is that in the movies we because we actually get to see Boromir fighting the orcs and we actually get to see Merry and Pippin being kidnapped. There's much more clearly a sense of like he regrets what he did to or tried to do to Frodo and here he is trying to redeem himself and like be a good person at the 11th hour and like make up for this thing that he did. And ultimately like he can't save them but at least he you know he gave his life trying and there's no sense there's very little sense of that in the books because we missed the whole fight scene. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Like the leaving out of the actual action. I mean, we we've already talked a lot about how Tolkien hates writing <laughs> fight scenes, but it is it feels like something really kind of got taken away from this scene from us, especially because it's like in between these two books. Um it feels like there was kind of this almost like somebody hit the fast forward button and you know, when Aragorn finds Boromir, uh, Boromir explains to him what he did. He says, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. And, like, he basically says all of his regrets. But we don't get that moment of, like, character redemption in which he dies a hero. Um, Aragorn, like, says something vague to that effect. He's like, no, don't worry. You're fine. You're still you're still a good dude. But <laughs> But it's not the same sense of, like you know, the the hero's death that it is in the movie. And it's weird given how much we've talked about how Boromir is a much more sympathetic character in the books that this moment is not more sympathetic towards him. Yeah. I mean, it's not even necessarily that 
he is fully redeemed for his actions in the movie, but I feel like he gets more of a sense of closure. Like, he's sort of feeling like he tried, at least, and feeling like even though he failed, um, he can really sort of clearly pass that trust on to Aragorn. And there's a little bit of that here in terms of sort of charging Aragorn to defend Minas Tirith and and take up his role that he's sort of waffling about this whole time. Mm-hmm. That part I actually felt was actually more clear in, in the book where I've always kind of not truly understood why Aragorn and company didn't follow Frodo. And in this, it felt like a clear moment of Boromir asking him to go to Minas Tirith on his behalf. Um, and obviously, like, they want to save Merry and Pippin too. But, you know, two hobbits or other two hobbits, how do you decide, right? <laughs> like, but this felt like a like a more clear-cut reason for why he would choose to go on that path instead of following Frodo. What did you guys think of how Aragorn comes off here? Are you talking about like when he decides to go, like when he decides to go and um, and rescue Merry and Pippin? I guess like that's kind of what I'm getting at is the decides was decidedly lacking there. I I just felt like he's so indecisive in these chapters. Like I don't I don't really understand his leadership style at all if there is one. Um, if he even thinks of himself as a leader, but it seemed so much like he kept being like, I don't know what to do. What should we do? What's the right path? And then finally Gimli is just like, dude, there is no right path, which was a great line. Excellent work, Gimli. Uh, but that, that moment was just, it really made it clear how reluctant he is to really take any firm decisions as as we've noted before, but it, it continued to be the case here. I will say I had a better response to the indecision here than I've had throughout Fellowship. And I think in part it was because he does finally actually make a decision and we get to see him bring up the question of what to do. Let's talk about it with the other people he's traveling with. Like he actually initiates having that conversation and does it just sort of put it off indefinitely? And I'm like, you know what? That's progress. A staff meeting has finally been called. <laughs> yeah. And it's a staff meeting where he's not just like, hey, guys, we're going to go around and do some check-ins. He's like, here's what needs to happen. We have to make this decision. Aragorn just does better in smaller groups. <laughs> right. That's true. I-, I will give him credit. And he also has a moment of um, kind of accepting that he has messed up a bunch where he says, like, all of my decisions have been bad ones. Why do you want me to make this one? <laughs> um, and I felt that was that was a good kind of moment of acceptance that he is not necessarily ready to take up this mantle, uh, but he's kind of being forced to. I I felt more sympathetic towards him, certainly, than I did previously, but I don't know. He He's certainly not the characterization that we get from Vigo in the movies. Well, he's really in his element in, the, in these chapters, right? Because they decide to go off and hunt the orcs. Yeah, they're rangering. They're straight up rangering now. <laughs> exactly, and they're they're running in they're running in a straight line for four days, and they do a really good job. <laughs> they run for something insane, like a hundred and fifty miles. So I guess we're we're kind of into the next chapter now of of them running in a straight line. Um, 
ostensibly, which is surprisingly interesting. Yeah, ostensibly this is another walking chapter, which I love to complain about, but this one actually felt a lot better. I think because Tolkien finally discovered that his characters can talk to each other, and there is a ton of dialogue in this chapter. Um, and I think it's very successful. It's almost like, I mean, we just discussed that he wrote all of these at the same time, but it feels like a different writing style than the previous book in a way. Well, it makes me think that it's just a little bit easier to do character and landscape development through through dialogue um, than it probably is when you have eight or nine characters. That's true, yeah. I think it's easier to have three people talk to each other um, and have that be a clear interaction with character growth. There's also a part of me that wonders whether Tolkien is just more comfortable as an author inside Aragorn's head versus Frodo's. Because I I know that when we get to the second half of this book, which is also a small number of characters, right? I mean, it's Frodo and Sam and then Frodo and Sam and Gollum. And it stays that way pretty much, like, mostly the entire second half of Two Towers is just those three characters. So it's not just the number of people, right? And part of it's, I think, that that second half is a little more bleak and less of an adventure story. But I also wonder how much of that is going to be narrative style and whether Tolkien just has more fun inside Aragorn's head. That's a really interesting point. I think it could either be that or it could be like Frodo's mission and quest are really, really clear cut. Like we've established it. He's taken that ring to Mordor. And so his walking is just like furthering his already made up mind of where he's going. Whereas with this, this set of characters, like their motivations are kind of in flux. They are discovering things as they go. Right now, they're going after Merry and Pippin, but like obviously, as we know, they're going to find them. And at that point, like, what they're trying to do and and what their goals are change. I think it's just a little bit more dynamic of a plot to work with than just I'm taking this ring to Mount Doom. Yeah, the it, like when you watch them run slash walk slash whatever it is that elves and these elevated kinds of men do through Rohan, you're getting introduced to the landscape through their eyes as they kind of talk about why this landscape looks a little bit different than they usually would remember it as looking. And they talk about why that could be. I found that the sentences were a lot shorter. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Some of the sentences that he used to describe the landscape were really clipped, even to the point where they felt like they reminded me of modernist poetry in a little bit, in, in, in a way. And I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find an actual passage that I could use to back that up. Um, Cause otherwise you won't believe me. Um. <laughs> no, we, I, I think you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. That it's like, one of the things I remember you saying about the descriptions of the terrain last time was that it was really hard to just get a sense of where everything is in relation to each other. And I wonder if the short sentences help with that feeling at all. Did you yeah. get that sense? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that it's, it, they, uh, Tolkien is making descriptions of landscape do a little bit less work this time, partially again, because they're just running in a straight line, but also, um, also partly just because he's, he's trying a little bit less and they're moving a little bit more slowly or through like lands that are more unchanging. But I'm talking about like, 
lines where he says, like, turning back, they saw across the river the far hills kindled. They leaped into the sky, which I think is just really gorgeous. It's 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 beautiful writing. It's describing something that is not that different from something that we would see in our own world, but in a way that we would probably not usually think about it. Yeah, and it feels like that same description in the previous book would have been like a little bit more flowery, like more metaphor involved. And this felt it feels almost like he has gotten to the essence of the simplicity of the description, but it's still a unique enough description to be beautiful. Yeah, it still feels like a like a very alien world. I actually found myself like when I was reading about Rohan in these chapters, wondering where he got the inspiration for this. And I sort of have formed a theory that Tolkien is inspired by cowboys, uh, which I don't have any way of backing up whatsoever. <laughs> I, I kind of get where you're going with that. I mean, they are like the horse lords, right? So that factors heavily into who they are. I, I have always loved Rohan as a realm in this series. Like in both books and movies, I kind of have fallen in love with like this set of people and their land. I think because it feels the closest to me to something that would be in our world where like they're a very kind of understandably flawed people led by an understandably flawed King. They don't really have any special powers. Like they got some good horses, I guess. Um, And they're not really trying to do anything other than survive, which feels very like, relatable to me I think and I think I feel the the other realm that like would maybe fit into this category is Gondor and and the city of Minas Tirith but I feel less uh, of a of a an attachment to that I think because of the way that it's portrayed as like this kind of the last of defense and all they're doing is constantly defending against Mordor it's also just a city like we don't ever really see the broader like social ecosystem of Gondor, the way we see the broader sort of like they travel through Rohan and we hear about different villages being attacked and we see sort of like smaller sections of like governance all the way going up to Theoden King. But we get to see so much more of that than we ever really get for Gondor. Cause, because for Gondor, what we see is we see Minas Tirith and then we see the in the movies, at least, and I think it's already happened in the books. It's just described by Boromir. We see them go like to the like the town or the fort across the river and try and defend it. Yeah, right. And that's it. That's all we get of Gondor. And Gondor is huge. It's like like I discovered abruptly a couple chapters ago. It extends west past the uh, past where the Misty Mountains would be. Right. And I think the other resistance I have to to Gondor as a concept is it's it's portrayed as like the great realm of kings. And I'm like, okay, fine. But I'm more interested in this other realm where like they're just kind of people and there's no, you know, inherent amazing bloodline coming to save them all. And I'm also interested in how the dynamics between Rohan and Gondor play out because I feel like Rohan is set up to be the inferior realm, which makes it more interesting to me. Yeah, it's a, definitely the the like one of the junior partners. Yeah, in, in the realms of men. 
They also have the best theme music by far. I love the Rohan theme with every fiber of my being. <laughs> Rohan you know theme, also about? very cowboyish. <laughs> what? It is not cowboyish. <laughs> Here I will resist the cowboy comparison. <laughs> <laughs> It's got like, but but it, I, no, I meant that in the sense that it has like that very like home on the range kind of nostalgic tone to it. Yeah, it's like a little bit like bittersweet, I guess. What it really is, like Rohan is like Irish cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, guys, that's the hot take for this episode. The writers of Rohan are Irish cowboys. Isn't that basically what Peaky Blinders is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) though, okay, talking about Rohan and the difference between like what we see of Rohan and Gondor, one of the things that I like about how we're introduced to Rohan is all of their reactions are not necessarily wholly positive, but they're also negative in ways that feel really sensible to me or like justified um when you say their reactions are you talking about like our trio's reactions what the writers the, the, oh the writers okay what does eric Gordon refer to the trio as at some point he's like the the three something three hunters or something right. <laughs> that, that, there's more of the cowboy vibe i guess uh yeah but go on ashani it's the three lone rangers guys um no but i i just feel like there's that sense of we get, um, like, Aomer tells us that there's a little bit of negativity towards some of the wizards, but that makes sense because he knows and he tells us that Saruman has been, like, trying to influence the governance of Rohan and is doing some real shady shit. So it makes sense that they're like, yeah, we're not feeling so hot on the wizards right now. And it makes sense, too, that they're like, we're not super on board with getting drawn into this big war or this big conflict. We kind of just want to live our lives. And and all of that is very sensible. And also, I get why they're mad at Gandalf. Because honestly, if I was Theoden, I would be pissed at Gandalf. Yeah, okay, so we find out in this chapter that Gandalf straight up stole Shadowfax, who is apparently supposed to only be ridden by the Lord of the Mark. And on top of that, right, here's the part where if I was Theoden, I would be like, the next time I see Gandalf, I'm going to kill him. He doesn't just steal Shadowfax, which is bad enough, but when Shadowfax comes back, Aomer says he's wild and unrideable. Now, I've had friends who have sent their horses away to be trained and had those horses come back wild and unrideable. And the reason why that happened is because they were horrifically abused. So, like, if I'm Theoden and I'm sitting there going, here's my super special, like, king's only horse, it gets stolen and then it comes back acting like somebody mistreated it. Like, yeah, I'd be furious. This is the episode in which Ishani reveals herself as a horse girl. <laughs> oh, I, I went full horse girl. We got to Rohan and I was like, it's not worth pretending anymore. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, I that was like I read that in your notes and I was like, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And when I was when I was reading it in the chapter, I was more on the side of like, I understand why he would be pissed that like Gandalf essentially stole a horse that is only supposed to be ridden by him. 
Like, that is the culture of this land. And Gandalf just spit in its face and left with this horse. Is it clear Um, why Gandalf did that? So, earlier on, I felt like we got, like, maybe a paragraph about this. um, And I thought that Shadowfax, like, somehow had some kind of draw to Gandalf. Like, he was, like... I mean, he can't talk, but in some way he was like, I'm gonna come with you. He fell in love with Gandalf. <laughs> yeah. That's what it shows in the movies, but I think in the book all we've gotten is Gandalf goes to Theoden, gets thrown out, I think gets told, like, you can take a horse, but, you know, just get out of here. But then the horse he takes is Shadowfax. Well, I, you know, I feel like they could have been a little more specific in their instructions if there was a horse at the stables that was off limits. But My theory is that given that Shadowfax's ancestor uh, was a horse that could understand human speech, Gandalf took Shadowfax hoping that he could teach Shadowfax to talk. And in the process, <laughs> broke him psychologically so much that he returned to Rohan horribly broken and wild. He's like, I don't want to be ridden by anyone else because the last time someone rode me, it got weird. I had to listen to like Duolingo and it was terrible. So I think the actual implication here is is that he didn't come back like broken in that way. Like he is sad because Gandalf has died. And so he's like he's like mourning and also he's like, I guess wild in the sense that like he's not letting other people ride him. Yeah. Um, but but I don't hold think- up. <laughs> How does Shadowfax know that Gandalf has died? It's not like he was there when the Balrog sucked him into the depths. Yeah, but he, like, wouldn't he have been, like, waiting somewhere for Gandalf and Gandalf, like, never comes back or something? No, Gandalf, like, sent him off because Gandalf sent Shadowfax back before he came, like, and joined the Fellowship and they all went to Moria together. It's not like he was like, hey, Shadowfax, just hang out here while I take the ring to Mount Doom and then come back for you months later. It's kind of unclear, though, because, like, there's a lot of things in this book where things that are closer to nature than than they are to human beings seem to have a lot of telepathic abilities. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's unclear how sentient Shadowfax is as a being. Like, and also, I don't know, I feel like that we get some instances of news traveling very, very slowly in this realm, like how nobody knew what happened to Durin. And then we get some instances of just like lightning fast. Everybody knows this thing went down. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I feel like maybe someone told Joe. (laughs) (laughs) It was Bill the Pony. (laughs) Bill the Pony is a fucking snitch. Or, like, Galadriel or something, right? Because she knows now. But Shadowfax was back in Rohan by this point. I don't have a good explanation of this. But I... (laughs) What I I really wanted to get at is I think the fact that he will no longer let the men of Rohan ride him is what they are really taking offense to. I love that what happened to Shadowfax (laughs) is, like, a major major plot hole. We should create like a whole like cult. Where out was of that. Shadowfax? <laughs> the it's missing like years. Car- Carmen San Diego style. Okay, well, I don't know how important that was, but but we've got to keep it because that was clearly the the critical discussion 
Yeah. Yeah. Shadow Facts went through some Cormac McCarthy shit on the way back to Edoras <laughs> because, as we've established, Rohan is cowboy territory. <laughs> Honestly, though, it. Sorry, go on. I'm, I'm going to let this one rest. The thing with Shadow Facts is a small piece of the larger, like, why Rohan is a little bit like wary of other people who are claiming to be Gandalf's friends. And so in that sense, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me that you would be a little bit like, eh. and also they're still pretty helpful, you know? Yeah. And I think Wanda brought out something in her notes too, that like basically every time they've seen Gandalf in recent memory, like he's been telling them some bad news and so so it kind of makes sense that you know the bearer of bad news is not super liked it yeah that's not something that like i would have picked up on i think the first time that i read these books or when i watched the movies but uh, this idea that that someone who is the bearer of bad news can eventually like that plus the mistrust of the king can trickle down among the people into being a perception of that person as being evil um, or a bad faith false friend really can happen. Yeah, and I, I also thought it was really interesting how we get a sense that Aomer definitely doesn't agree with a lot of what the king is saying, but he also doesn't know who among his own company to trust with that information. And so he does a lot of, like, not... He, he does a lot of, like, towing the line of, you know, I'm... I don't know, we're not for Mordor, but we're not against Mordor. Like, I don't know what we're doing here. Because he doesn't know who in his company is, is you know, super loyal to the king and listening to everything he says. He doesn't know who is actually on the side of Mordor. And that is a thing that I feel like I have never fully understood about this moment until our current political moment in which I really do feel like I don't know what to say to who because I don't know, like, which sides people are on. Right. And you don't really know how something's going to be received if you say it to them. Yeah. Like, even if I say it as reasonably as possible, I never know. I mean, obviously, like, my close friends and family, like, I pretty much know how they feel about things. But, you know, in, in company other than theirs, I'm like... Hmm, I don't know how this person's going to respond to this. And it's kind of a situation that I've never been truly faced with. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking about something that happened on Christmas, which for people who are listening to this probably several months after the fact. So we're recording this the day after. Um, but like Christmas Eve, I hopped on a Zoom call with some of my extended family, including like a an aunt's husband's parents and sister who I've never met in person. And I'm sure they're lovely people, but it was one of those things where I'm like, these guys are strangers. And at one point, somebody else started mentioning politics, and I was like, I'm uncomfortable because I don't know how they're going to react to any of this because they're people I don't know. And even though I wasn't the one saying it, it made me really nervous that we were talking about a potentially very tense topic, and I didn't know what everyone's reaction was going to be. So I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of like, yeah, it's weird. 
Yeah, I really felt for Aomer in that moment where I was, especially because, well, let, let's talk about Aomer a little because I think we all had some some feelings about him as a character. I love Aomer. <laughs> um, I love him too. That sweet, sweet Carl Urban I that I can't yeah. stop picturing whenever Aomer comes up. <laughs> also, at some point when we watched these movies as kids, I remember Wanda telling me that she thought Carl Urban was hot. And at the time I was like, hot, no. And since that moment, I won. <laughs> fully changed my mind. She wins. He is hot forever <laughs> that's funny because like i've gone the other way on him i saw him trying to do that in- that american accent in star trek and i was like "Ooh, <laughs> yeah he was not good in star trek but uh if you haven't watched the amazon prime series the boys um accent is still questionable but he is fantastic and that show is fantastic oh i haven't seen the boys my it's carl urban recommendation that. is that everybody should watch my favorite so bad it's good movie which is 2012's dread Oh, in boy. which what is that? he plays comic book anti-hero Judge Dredd and wears a giant helmet the entire time and you just see his really grumpy little mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I, that sounds like a thing. <laughs> I like what you're saying, Navia, about about how Aramur is is caught in a very compromising situation. Where yeah. he for reasons that we haven't been made privy to yet in the book, it doesn't agree with what Theoden is doing and some of the king's judgment at this point, but still needs to be a representative of his king because he's loyal to his king. I I felt reading this like it was a fantastic contrast seeing Aomer and Aragorn interact because we've talked a lot about Aragorn's leadership style, but Aomer is an excellent leader. And I really like that because he is actually, unlike Aragorn, not really born to be one. He's really just kind of put in this situation. I think he's the king's nephew, and he does eventually become the king of Rohan, but really only because Theoden's son dies. Um, But he is kind of just thrust into the leadership position, but he does a really good job at it. Like, he does a really good job kind of confronting these people, but being reasonable about hearing them out facing them with logic and like some practical reasoning, uh, understanding what his men should and should not be privy to. I don't know. I just felt like we saw some really good leadership moments. And he's also, unlike Aragorn, supremely decisive in this situation. He's like, cool, here's what we're going to do. This, this, and this. Uh, Here's some horses. Go on your way. Um, And that contrasted with Aragorn's like weird moment of he's like, Amor's like, who are you? And Aragorn throws his hood back and is like, I am Aragorn, Isildur's heir. And it's, oh God, this moment was so cringy. Like, I I know it was written to be this great moment of reveal of he has finally come into his own, but all I could think of was him being like, do you even know who I am? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually, I want to, I want to suggest like, that that's it's actually not a cringy moment i think that he definitely is being like do you even know who i am but it's interesting that aragorn waits to do that until the second or third time aomer asks who they are the first time he says my name is strider and i'm just a guy and then he then the way that i read it was he gets a sense that aomer and aomer's company are not uh flunkies for sauron and then he goes ahead and he reveals that he's aragorn 
And after like looking at this a couple times, because Ashani and Navia, you both put in your notes some things that made me want to go back and read this section again. The when I went back and I looked at it, I thought this is this is Aragorn intentionally making a play about his own identity that is supposed to shock Aomer into assessing the situation differently. I also definitely got a sense of intention. And I think it's interesting that you use that word, Wanda, because intention was to me the thing that really changed this from being, I don't want to say cringy to not at all cringy, because I did still kind of sit there and go, Ugh, I don't know that it's 100% earned yet. But it felt less awkward and awful than when he does this on the river back in fellowship and they're like passing the Argonath and he's just like, I am king. Um, And to (laughs) me, what changed there was it really did feel like here he was saying it for a reason, right? That there was a reason where he was like, I need to step up and lay full claim to that part of my identity in order to have these people understand why we're doing what we're doing um, and hopefully trust us because sort of being shady or being like sort of telling them half truths isn't working and I need them to buy in. (laughs) He also does it a little bit to distract from Legolas and Gimli's like immediate antagonist. (laughs) While, while, While ratcheting up their bromance by several notches, They're basically just like, no, you tell me who you are. I will not tell you who I am. (laughs) Kill me first. No, kill me first. (laughs) (laughs) Although that, Um, like, it's because they insult Galadriel, right? And Gimli is jumping mm, to her defense. So they don't necessarily handle it super well, but they're not just for no good reason being (laughs) like, oh, we'll kill you. Gimli trying to defend the beauty of Lothlorien over basically anything else at this point. There were some interesting references in this chapter to, like, the things that people perceive as legend or myth. I was Um, just going to bring that up, too. Yeah. So, like, the people of Rohan basically see Galadriel and and Lorien as an evil place where they're just like, well, people go there and they do not come back. Um and honestly, if there was a place that people went and didn't come back from, I would also think that was an evil place. Um, but like Brooklyn? It's the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle. But also there were a couple of references to um, like Saruman in this way and Gandalf in this way. But also very interestingly, um, a moment where they tell them that they're looking for hobbits or halflings and the men of Rohan are just like, that's a myth. Those don't exist. And that was really interesting to me because that's essentially how the hobbits feel about everything else in the world. Um, And it's amazing, I guess, to see how if a group of people shuts themselves away for long enough, they become the stuff of legend, even though they are still very real and like real things are happening to them. The one I thought was the most interesting was that as soon as Aragorn outed himself as being Isildur's heir... There was like a collective gasp among everyone. And then Aomer's like, am I in a dream? Somebody pinch me. I didn't know that there was a walking heir to Isildur out there. And I actually wanted to ask you guys, like, do you guys, could could we do a count off of like which characters so far know that Aragorn exists? (laughs) I'm going to say Gandalf, yes, of course, because they're friends. And Elrond, of course, because Aragorn grew up there. 
Other than that, is Aragorn a secret to basically everybody? I think the elves in general know about his existence. Because, like, there's the whole thing with Arwen. And Galadriel definitely knows about him because, like, he met Arwen in Lorien. So I think the elves are, like, kind of in the know and they've been helping hide him. But other than that, yeah, it's pretty much like Gandalf and yeah, that's... Um. Well, what I think is so interesting about this is that it's one thing to have uh, a race of creatures or people that live way far away from you basically become a myth in your society. And it's quite another thing to have a person who has visited your land multiple times in recent memory remain a myth. Like Aragorn says later in the chapter, he t- he says to Am- he says to Amor, he's like, "Oh, I know your dad. I also know his name," <laughs> and and it and it's like, wow, amazing that like this person is like that. Amor is so shocked by this person's existence, despite like despite how despite the fact that Aragorn has been to Rohan so much. It also makes it kind of wild that like whenever he reveals himself, everyone's just like, "Oh, wow, cool." You're the heir of Isildur, and there's not a moment of, like, prove it, or, (laughs) you know, anything like, like, yeah, he's got this sword, and that seems to be all the proof that anybody needs is, but, I don't know, it seems kind of weird to just have him, like, be like, I've been in hiding all this time, but now I am revealing myself, and everyone's like, yep, I accept this wholeheartedly, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, especially because, well, okay, Wanda, to your point, what I would say is presumably when he's been to Rohan in the past, he has only ever introduced himself as Strider and not Aragorn. Maybe, but I mean, I'm going off of movie lore at this point, but isn't there like a scene in the movies where Eowyn's like, oh, I remember you like you were in battle with my grandfather. Yeah, but if he was in battle as like Bob the Butcher... You know, they wouldn't but be if he like was in battle as Bob the Butcher. They wouldn't have. They, she wouldn't know that. Right? <laughs> I like that idea of Aragorn having a, an alter ego. There, who's just there Bob. is a lot of inconsistency though in like which names he uses when and and this idea that he's like hasn't revealed himself this whole time because we've seen him reveal himself like eight times to Frodo and Frodo every single time he does it is still like wait you really are <laughs> so I don't know like there's a lot of kind of hand wavy wishy-washy stuff around exactly who is in the know about this and also which persona they're in the know about it's like biden winning the election hey guys have you heard that aragorn is the heir of Isildur? <laughs> yeah i mean actually i think that's i don't know my take on it which i am interested to get your guys' thoughts on is is that um <laughs> 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 Wanda's take is just laughter, uncontrollable. I keep looking for places to say your names, and then like, and sometimes I I just like almost say your names at like a really inappropriate point. (laughs) My take on this that I'm curious to know your thoughts on Navia and Ashani. Literally, what what I was about to say. Um, Yeah, my take on this that I'm curious for your thoughts on is that Era of Isildur is as Era of Isildur does slash says, and that it's probably possible that it's possible that Aragorn has introduced himself as Aragorn before, but has just not said Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir to Isildur and heir to Elendil. You have to kind of really explicitly make those connections for people to be like 
shocked and and to have their reality kind of reworked in the way that Aomer's reality is is reworked in this chapter. And I like I like that because it feels it feels like Tolkien is acknowledging something that is real about about politics, no matter if you live in a democracy or a monarchy, which is that you have to assert, you have to kind of make your own like living legend in real time in order to um, in order to command any kind of uh, of following or or to convince people that they should that you have any kind of legit like legitimate claim to leadership. Yeah, and it also seems like the reactions of people differ based on like how important this is to them personally, like to the realm of Rohan, it is actually quite important who the heir of Isildur is because it directly impacts like what they have, the relationship they have with Gondor. And again, to like Boromir, it's super important. Right. But I mean, you, you see the way that the dwarves and Gimli react. They're kind of like, okay, sure. If you say so. And, And the hobbits are, kind of in awe but also don't really know what they're in awe of and and to the elves they're just like we've been protecting this person because we know he's important but like we're not in awe of him or anything he's not like gonna rule over us and so it's interesting to see that play out because i like you were saying it kind of maps to how i've seen politics work out where you know people are very invested in the things that impact them directly whether it's people or policy and then if it doesn't they're kind of like sure that's fine. And there's kind of this interesting element to something I've been thinking about when you were saying like, oh, he's gone back to these places before. But he's gone back in a role where any record of him being there is either word of mouth or relies on human memory in terms of like, who is this person and what does he look like? Right? Because the biggest sort of proof of being Isildur's heir other than carrying the sword is the fact that he ages really slowly because he's got this like Numenorean blood but he's not in a position where he's getting royal portraits painted like he's a traveler so if you met somebody 15 years ago and then somebody comes back and they don't tell you that it's the same person right or you just happen to see them passing are you really going to be like oh that's the same man and he hasn't aged a day or are you going to be like huh he looks kind of familiar but you know maybe i'm misremembering yeah and a lot of people look like aragorn also you got all these other rangers floating yeah. around <laughs> right yeah okay so i think i I want to get to one more thing before we wrap up, which is just kind of a point of interest, which is that this chapter ends in a kind of interesting way where the three hunters, uh, (laughs) they've they've been given these horses by the men of Rohan and they are going off to look for Merry and Pippin and they've set up camp for the night right at the edge of Fangorn. And suddenly they see an old man. And Gimli and Legolas immediately react being like, oh my god, this is something bad. And they like pull their weapons. And Aragorn, interestingly, is like, no, everything's fine. And he greets the old man saying, hello. I think he says father. Um, And that was cool. (laughs) And then suddenly the old man vanishes. And when they look, the horses have also gone. It is strongly implied at this point that this man is supposed to be Saruman, given their interactions with Amor and what he has revealed about this wizard who walks the forest wreaking havoc. Um, we know, because 
we are familiar with the story that there is also another wizard who is roaming this forest at this point, which is Gandalf. And it is left open to interpretation which one this is. I don't know if it was ever revealed which one this is. Um, I would strongly think that Gandalf wouldn't just randomly steal their horses, which makes (laughs) me think that this is Saruman. But also... Really? I feel like we've just gotten evidence that Gandalf does this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Gandalf is an established horse thief, so... It's also unclear... Gandalf steals and eats horses. (laughs) It's also unclear whether the horses are actually stolen or whether they were just spooked and ran away. Um, So there's a lot of kind of open-ended stuff in this, and I'm curious what you guys thought of it, and also, I guess, who you think this is. Are there any other old men in Middle-earth? I'm sure there are lots I mean, of old men in Middle no, Earth. No, there's four. Is it Bar- Barlam and Butterpur? <laughs> there's four old men, okay? It's Denethor, Theoden, Gandalf, and Saruman, and that's it. And then there's that, like, one old dude with no eye in Helm's Deep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that guy is just wandering around the forest ready to fuck shit up. Uh, all right. I think that's a good place to wrap <laughs> okay all right thanks for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by navia you can find us on twitter at odns pod and tumblr at one does not simply pod special thanks to andrew sneha and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey if you like what you hear give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to I think the old man at the end of the chapter was you. (laughs) Sorry.